Good morning, everyone. Uh, y'all can have a seat. Um, I'm usually behind the drum set, but I've been asked to share my testimony this morning. Um, my name is James Vincent Hardinger III, uh, third of his name, so they call me Trey, for you Game of Thrones fans out there. Um, getting to the age where I've been called, uh, being called Sir and Mister. Uh, I've also held pivotal uh, titles such as Recruit, Sergeant, Shellback, for some of you uh, sailors out there, uh, Veteran, Chef, um, and many other names I probably shouldn't share. But two things I adore being called the most are Father and Husband. However, the greatest title I've ever held, um, I never had to earn, and that's Child of God. Um... You know, my testimony, I feel, uh, I've got so many notes here, I'm just going to throw. My testimony seems to always lie in the dark places where things get hard. Um, And I guess there's a lot of metaphors that can uh, be spun off of that. But in my life, looking back now, I'm fully aware that God's plan for me was to put me through a fair amount of affliction. Um, And... uh, always uh, then are heavily eclipsed by glory. Um, The forms of his glory I never acknowledged until my adult life. So uh, early on, we did the obligatory Christmas and Easter. I think James called it um, Cheester or Keister, Creaster. And, uh, you know, the Lord's Prayer was like what you said. You didn't pray. We just said the Lord's Prayer and everything was great. Um, Always felt very scripted. I was an Air Force brat, um, grandson of a four-star general, uh, son of who would become a full bird colonel, both fighter pilots, both combat vets. I mean, all kinds of aerial missions. Grandfather founded, uh, well, he didn't found, but he was uh, the commander-in-chief of uh, NORAD for four years, which I later learned is like the third longest tenure that you can be in Cheyenne Mountain as a commander. In fact, the movie War Games, uh, General Beringer um, actually played the role of my grandfather at that time. So, uh, you know all kinds of hope for me. Um, my dad always seemed to find greater expression and, and, and joy in my accomplishments than I did, um, which ultimately led me to have this hyper-competitive character. Anyone that's known me, um, you know, will say that I'm probably very intense. I can be somewhat competitive. Um, you know, and everything I try to do, it's like I, I try to become, like, just really good really quickly and overstep my bounds at times. Um, in 90, my dad went to war. Uh, my parents divorced pretty much immediately after that. Uh, left me spiritually dead. Not that I had much of, I mean, the only spirit I had was like being a Redskins fan um, back when that was a, a sports team. Um, and also baseball. I was switch hit when I was five years old. My dad played college baseball, so he couldn't make it because he got himself into some trouble that he's never told me. Um, so he had to live vicariously through my efforts and all that stuff. So played a lot of baseball growing up, probably was better than Seth ever was, Um, but uh, at least at that age, Um, but um, he would would go on to write two letters to me, my dad, one of which uh, he told my mom not not to let me open until I turned 16, and one he wrote later once I was in the service, Um, so uh, we moved down to Jacksonville after my parents' divorce, I'm supposed to only have 10 minutes, this might go a little bit longer, so uh, uh, glad y'all are sitting. Um, so, uh, parents divorced. I, we ended up moving back to Jacksonville where my mom was from. And, uh, uh, she immediately went into working two jobs, started putting herself through school. Um, you know, all I knew of a social life was, um, being the new kid, uh, going to boys and girls club every day after school, learning this game called Foursquare, which I immediately became like the all-star at. Like, where'd this kid come from? Um, I had all the spins and everything, like black magic was the thing. I don't know. Anyways, that's terrible. Um, but um, I quit sports um, within a couple years of being down here. I didn't have enough support behind the scenes to push me as hard as my dad had pushed me. I would be running, you know, they call them suicide sprints at soccer practice, and I would see these guys that I was surfing against every weekend in, in contests. I'd see them riding their bikes to the beach, and I'm like, well, they're going to go practice but they're like having a great time. I'm over here puking, running nonstop. Um, what am I doing with my life? So I quit all sports and I started surfing. And that came with a lot of other, um, a lot of other dynamics. Uh, one of was, was punk rock. One was, uh, you know, 
things that came with being a punk rocker in Jacksonville in the mid-90s. Um, I was in the band, um, <clears throat> and uh, we played with a lot of other local bands, and we thought we were great. We were terrible. In fact, one of our names was Far From Perfect, um, which was kind of punk rock at the time. But um, any attention I could get, I, I sought after, and no matter how hard it was for me to get the attention. And uh, I'll kind of let your imagination take that one away. I don't feel like I need to fully disclose a lot of that stuff, but I was just, I called myself, you know, looking back, I was just an absolute knucklehead. I was a jarhead before I became a jarhead. And um, anyways, so uh, my junior year in high school, <clears throat> I ended up missing 97 days uh, of school. Uh, I just, I didn't feel like going. My mom was never, never held me accountable for anything she couldn't. Um, and uh, it was all to surf and do other things. Um, ended up moving to Niceville, Florida because they had a program, the only program in the state um, that would allow me to graduate on time. So going into my senior year, I had uh, 12 credits and a 1.2 GPA. Um, so I moved to Niceville, they had this CAPE program. I had to stay every day after school for two and a half hours. Um, I couldn't be charted for one class. I had this gentleman's bet with the principal there. And so anyways, ended up graduating with a 2.1 uh, I had a 4.8 GPA that year, um, ended up getting all 24 credits. I started a grill team. We would like, Niceville, Florida, every business shuts down at like 3 p.m. on Fridays and you go to the football game. Like if you're not, you're like not alive. And so we started a grill team. We started a beach volleyball team. Like I became, I started like flourishing and I really started uh, holding myself accountable for doing good things. Um, graduate of high school, uh, moved out of the house. I thought I had great plans for myself, but you know, I ended up kind of, sliding back down that, that slope of, uh, of comfort, like whatever I could get my hands on to feel comfortable, um, whether it was just staring at the TV all day, playing video games, doing other things that, you know, completely lost souls can do. Um, in fact, I felt annoying to a lot of people, including my family. And there's a particular group of uh, people that genuinely seemed interested in my future. Uh, in fact, they could guarantee a better future for me. Uh, they called themselves Marines. And uh, though my recruiter did his job and completely lied to me about what I was going to do, uh, he didn't lie that the Marines would give me a better future. And looking back um, through those years I served, God's jealousy for me, I'm sorry, God's jealousy for my attention becomes more and more apparent. Um, so the first three years was boot camp. Um, you know, I graduated. It's like that scene in Full Metal Jacket where he's like, I forget the guy's name. He's like, joker or whatever congratulations you made it infantry and he didn't want to be infantry uh but i they i, I enlisted to fix computers because i wanted to have a decent job and this is like you know before it was it so whatever but um i must have been onto something but they told me i was a field radio operator which has like a seven second life expectancy in combat um so stoked um <laughs> went to combat training uh a few weeks and then went out to comm school 29 palms um where i just crushed it uh, I wrote a wish list right when we first started uh, where I wanted to be stationed. Kaneohe Bay, obviously. It's the only Marine Corps base in Hawaii. Then Camp Pendleton, because that's in Southern California. And then Camp Lejeune, which is close to the Outer Banks. Um, so all about me. What, where do I want to live? Like, where, where am I going to be most comfortable? Um, <clears throat> then um, a few weeks before graduation, uh, First Sergeant from First Force Recon Company came out. And he asked who could swim really good. And I raised my hand because I grew up surfing. And he looked like a very challenging man, formidable guy, um, chest the size of a refrigerator. And then he said, all right, well, you're skipping chow today at 1100, and you're going to meet me at the pool. And so me and, like, five other guys went. We didn't drown. It was terrible. If you want, you can look up Recon Indoc and find out for yourselves what that's all about. Um, you end up drinking a lot of chlorinated water, pretty much. Uh, so um, anyways, I thought that was all for naught because one week before graduation, I received orders to go to Kaneohe Bay. I graduated second in my class. I got my wish. Hey, Bay, there you go. You can surf. You can be a Marine. Um, but God had other plans. He's got an incredible sense of humor. Um, <clears throat> so then the very next day, I got orders to 3rd Recon Battalion, Okinawa, Japan, um, which was just. Oh. It was the biggest blessing ever. Um, well, I'm sorry, not the biggest, but it was the a blessing in disguise. I hated it. The guy that told me to raise my hand in that meeting, he was a D1 wrestler from Ohio State. He was like 5'5", 180. So he was obviously like built to be that kind of a person. I think my competitive nature is what really helped me push through. 
Um, so I trained with recon marines. Yeah. Sorry. These guys are just, they're killers. I mean, they're the, the gnarliest people in the world. No one knows them because they're not funded. <clears throat> they're not talked about. They call themselves a forward shadow. And that's what I wanted to be. It was like more of a therapy session for me, I guess. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but I was a roper. And a roper is a, is a Marine that wants to be a recon Marine or want to be. And you wear a rope everywhere you go. You get thrashed. Now it's called hazing, I believe, but they called it training. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you have to know all the knowledge. You never sleep. Uh, I did that for nine months. And then I went, then I went to recon school, which is very similar to PUDS without the underwater demolition portion. It's without Halo or any jumping or any dive qualifications. It's 12 weeks of camp, uh, sorry, of uh, Naval Amphibious Base Coronado. And you're chewing on sand for 12 weeks and uh, watching people drop left and right. So by the seventh week, um, I didn't quit. I didn't know how to quit. God knew that wasn't my plan to be a recon marine. Um, so, and I got hurt. I separated my shoulder and uh, got dropped from the course. No one else quit after me. Like, no one, everyone ended up graduating. It started with like 90 some people, like 18 people graduated. <clears throat> so, no worries. I'll get surgery, I'll rehab, and I'll go back. I went and had surgery, I rehabbed, and ended up going to ARS, which is the same school on a different coast, but it was just, I, my ITB like almost snapped the first day, I couldn't walk, so I got dropped again. So two and a half years of just ultra intense training, trying to be the world's elite fighting force, you know, fully digesting this belt-fed mentality of, you know, overachieving all these expectations um, set forth by others and uh, being this just killer. Um, God had other plans so I, I called myself a career roper I wasn't a recon marine, I was a career roper so I wore a rope and was just a, you know, did all the things marines do when they're overseas, watch some movies um, so uh, ended up teaching radio my last year because I was a radio guy so they told me, look, you, you got hurt whatever you, wherever you want to go, we'll send you, I taught radio 29 Palms again, and then a lot of my friends from high school ended up going out to uh, San Diego so I moved to San Diego, uh, not terribly far south from where I actually trained um, in Coronado. Uh, so I lived in Imperial Beach for, for six years and very quickly went back to my old ways. Um, but this time I was more fit. Um, I had more charisma. I was more confident in myself. And I was 24. And, uh, and I wanted to be a chef. And so went to culinary school, put myself through school. Um, and uh, if it was on the table, I was taking care of it for six years. Ended up starting a band with some friends. Uh, quit my job as a chef because I thought we were going to go on tour. And didn't happen. So I financed my living expenses the last uh, six months I was there by going to places that had house parties and I'd go recycle their cans for change. And I'd dig through couches for change. And I would get, if I, ha if I could get a dollar a day, I could get two packs of peanuts and eat dinner. Um, and then all my friends that, you know, wanted to you know, have, have dirt on me would, would give me a burrito or something, which were three bucks because you're in San Diego. Um, you know, culinary school, all these things, like all these just really hard things. I'm, I'm, I'm going somewhere with all this, guys. Sorry. Um, but again, I feel like all these things are, are testimonies in and of themselves. Um, called my sister one day because she had a, a second child, and she said, what are you doing? Just come home. Like, you got these two daughters here that are, sorry, you got these two nieces here that just think you're this mythical creature, come home. So I, I, she bought me a Greyhound ticket, I had nothing, uh, moved home. Um, about two weeks after I moved home, I got a job at Marker 32, where I was the executive chef, ended up being there for seven years. Um, a week after I got that gig, I met my now wife, Carmen, at the Ritz, it's a great place to meet. Um, I told her she wanted nothing to do with me, that I was uh, $80,000 in debt, and all I had were sharp knives, uh, surfboard, and a skateboard. And I can cook. And uh, she, and uh, yeah, so she fell for it. <laughs> Sucker. Um, and, uh, and then we had, we had Stella, our first daughter, in 2013. Um, we wanted to raise her in church. We wanted to get into church ourselves. We went to 1122 a few times. Um, it, was, it, was, it was cool, you know, that the worship was great. And that's where I 
I know like God knew I needed to have music in my life deeply because um, he knew that was like that was the chum the final chum for me to really get on board um, so uh, <clears throat> we didn't actively pray, pray together as a family or anything but we went there we dedicated Stella to 1122 sorry James I don't know if you've ever told you that um, so one day, uh, being a chef, you know, working 60, 70, 80 hours a week, um, I never had time for myself, so I told Carmen I was going to go surf, and I didn't check it, I didn't, you know, anything, I went to the poles, and uh, I paddled out an axis I typically don't paddle out at, and I went out, and uh, there was really only one person around me, and hadn't seen the guy since I played in bands alongside him in high school, because he was a punk rock drummer, and I was a punk rock drummer, and I thought I was better, but really he was way better than me. Um, it, it was James, James McDonald's, was in the water. Um, and, uh, and I told him what I was doing. He told me that he was the, the worship pastor here at Beach's Chapel. Um, and uh, I said, man, I'm, I'm at Marker 32, you know, come in and see me sometime. I don't know, if, I don't know exactly what it was said, but anyways, he and Jesse went that night to Marker. And uh, it was their first date night after having Cassie. And uh, immediately went out, recognized them, took their menus away. I said, you won't be needing these. Hope you're hungry. And just, just styled them out, is what we say in the business. So sat there and just course after course after course, you know. And, uh, yeah. He, he did some light critique at the end, but, you know, wasn't too bad. So around that, around, you know, a couple weeks after that, he brought a worship CD. He said, hey, I don't know if you're still in the music, but here's a worship album. We just made a Beach of Chapel. Check it out. Let me know what you think. Cool, get in my car, straight in the glove box, right next to the Bud Light bottle caps, you know, and uh, so I say that I, I never listened to it, but I think I did listen to it a couple years after you gave it to me, and I don't know what happened to it. It, like, vanished, I don't know. But, uh, you know, uh, around that, a couple years pass, our daughter, we were having a hard time finding a place for her to go to school. Uh, Carmen had taken her to Providence and Beaches Chapel, and... Uh, Around that same time, uh, Stella had a PT appointment on the other side of town, and Carmen took Stella to a park where the plan was for Jesse to be at that park and Valerie and a mutual friend they, they have that isn't here. And, and they start talking, they get to know each other, and, uh, and Carmen says, hey, we're having a hard time getting our daughter into a school. We checked out Beaches Chapel, and then they told Carmen to bring her to Beaches Chapel, so Stella started going to Beaches Chapel school, BP can, I think. Uh, Stella loved it, and so we're like, man, let's go check it out. So we come in, and I forgot, you know, I didn't forget James was the worship pastor, but I just forgot that what worship really was. So we came in, and it was, the music was so good, and I loved it. But when I walked in, I saw Don Colbert, who is my godfather, for those of you that don't know. I had no idea he went to church here. I had no idea he was an elder here. I had no idea the impact he made at the school here or the church. And, uh, you know, like, hey, here's, here's, there's chum already around the boat. But here's, here's some little fish heads for you, too. Like, here's, I don't know how to, terrible, like, relation there. But um, anyway, so, like, there's these things. I saw Jacob Swaney, who I cooked with at Marker 32, and I knew at high school, you know. Anyone that knows Jacob, you know, he's, he's a great dude, just super jovial guy. Got all kinds of tattoos and stuff. Like, some of you, you know, like me, I wouldn't have related at that time, like, you know, someone that kind of looked like him being in church. And no offense, Jacob, um, I think you're a stud. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I saw him here. I saw Don. I saw James. You know, everyone's so welcoming. Uh, within a few times coming, Sal introduced himself. Jim Monroe introduced himself. Big Jim Morris. Everyone was just, just the, the warmest embraces uh, for, for my family and I. That I ended up meeting who I call the generals, uh, Lance, Dale, um, you know, and some of the elders, Kyle uh, and, and Robert Hartzell. Um, and then uh, the more we came up for prayer, the more we started talking about our daughter and Stella was having some hard times. And uh, so were we. And, uh, I'm sorry. But Pastor Lewis, Louise, and Dave Swain cannot stop praying for them. Because <sighs> they always wanted to pray for Stella. And uh, we never had to ask. They would just stop us. Hey, I'm going to pray for your daughter. All right. Yes, sir. 
and it's still like I'm still having resentment in my heart for things. I'm still like not believing fully that God is behind all of this. And then James said, hey, you want to play drums? And that's when I was told. <laughs> I mean, not really, but he asked me if I want to play drums one day and play worship, and I, and I started playing. And, uh, you know, still learning a lot about playing worship. It's definitely not punk rock. But, uh, you know, going back to the beginning, all over again, sorry. Um, <clears throat> my testimony is in the hard places, and, and, and my testimony is ongoing. I don't know if it's ever going to end. Um, you know, Air Force brat, I learned happiness of accomplishments. Dad went to war. I suffered adversity and loss. I quit playing sports. I learned to quit on myself, and I listened to the enemy. I sought change as an option in life when I moved to Niceville to graduate high school and I learned self-accountability. Um, but it's funny, these notes are being played uh, because I feel, I feel like they're the same notes that are in the song. I'm going to kind of read a line from. It's How He Loves, written by uh, John Mark McMillan, made famous by David Crowder Band. And uh, my favorite version is uh, Peter Mattis. Peter Mattis' version of uh, Bethel. And the line goes, he's jealous of me. He loves like a hurricane and up a tree. He loves like a hurricane, and I'm a tree bending beneath the weight of his wind and burst. The wind being all the affliction, all the hard times, and his mercy. For me, it was like a sense of humor to kind of like lift me out. When all of a sudden I'm aware of these afflictions, eclipsed by glory, and I never knew that was his glory. I never knew me getting hurt was his glory, because I still have a lot of hard, hard time with uh, the guys, the friends that never came back from combat and uh, I mean I could have been there I could have called calm I could have called a better air mission who knows but but it was his glory his glory was was in keeping me from combat his glory was in making me think I could be a rock star bringing me home wanting to go to the Ritz for something other than to meet girls and I met Carmen and she's a Syrian if you guys don't know she was Okay, I thought she was Mexican, and I'd been, I'd been, I'd been in San Diego, so I mean, you know, um, <clears throat> but uh, she was very into family, and I was trying to turn over that leaf, and uh, I was kind of bummed she wasn't Mexican at first, but uh, her mom, her mom can cook really well, that's for sure. She, she's learning to. She's she's actually become quite the cook, but so that's all of his glory are in are in what I thought were were the hard times. Um, and it's not until those afflictions were eclipsed by glory uh, that I realized just how beautiful he is and how great his affections are for me. Oh, how he loves us so. Um, so that's, uh, that's kind of, you know, the cliff's notes of my spiritual journey, and it's, it's going to be ongoing. I'm by no means walking the path that I, I, I want to walk with the Lord. Um, you know, I've had to sacrifice friendships to walk this path. Um, you know, God closes the doors he wants closed. He opens the, the ones that he wants to be open, and sometimes he'll just point to a door and leaves you to make the decision to open it or close it. But, uh, thank you guys. I, uh, again, I feel like this is more therapeutic for me than, than anything, and, uh, but yeah, that's all I have, guys. My testimony. So. Oh, gosh. Thank you. Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. But God is so rich in mercy. He loves us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and is seated with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. So God can point to us in all of the future ages as an example 
of the incredible wealth and grace of his kindness towards us, shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you. By his grace, you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is his gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. So we can do great things he has planned for us long ago. morning. My name is Sharon Barker. I was born in Bethesda, Maryland. Um, I was a military brat. We moved from Maryland to Hawaii when I was five, and then from Hawaii to Virginia when I was eight. I mean, from Hawaii, yes, from Hawaii to Jacksonville when I was eight. Mayport, my dad was stationed. Um, I went to church at Bethlehem Lutheran then, um, and I went to school at Fletcher, and I lived in the neighborhood right behind the church here, Bell Harbor, and I had a really great childhood here, and I went, um, I was active in the church, but never like I was here, never like I am here. I've gotten real involved in the church here where I've dug into it a little more. When I went to church before, I went to church and then went home, and that was about it. Um, I went to Fletcher my whole uh, high school year until my senior year. In my senior year, I dropped out of school. Um, I got married the year before that summer and didn't tell my parents that I was pregnant. So in um, November, I had my first child when I was 17. Um, it was rough. By the time I was 19, I had my second one. Um, around that time, I started working at um, Aetna. And then my life got real rough because my husband was very possessive, didn't want me going anywhere, and the violence started. I didn't tell anybody anything about it. My parents, my sisters, I had five brothers and sisters. I didn't tell anybody, I just lived in it. I was ashamed, I was afraid, and I was embarrassed that I couldn't fix it. So I lived in it for 11 years. And then we divorced. Five years later, I fall in love again, at least I think I do. After not quite a year, but almost a year, I find out my husband's an alcoholic. He came home late, about three hours late from work one day. And I asked why he was home from work late. And he just didn't like me asking that, so he decided to slap me and knock me down. The next thing I knew, I was on the ground and he was on top of me. And my husband was a double black belt in karate. At that point, he proceeded to try to break my neck. And I thought to myself, this man's going to kill me today, and I'm going to die today. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to pray. All I could do is recite the Lord's Prayer over and over, yelling it. I got away, I don't know how, by the grace of God. I got my keys, I got in the car, and I drove to my sister's house. And when my sister answered the door, my, both of my eyes were already black. I had a broken nose, a cracked jaw, three broke ribs, and a bruised kidney. The next morning I was taken to the hospital. And I don't, you know, I was, that's when I found out all that what was wrong. But that night when that happened, when I went to my sister's house, 
first thing I did is I picked up the phone and tried to call people to help him. I was trying to fix him. That's always what I tried to do is to fix everybody. So I called an associate that he had that went to karate with him. Actually, it was Susan Hightower's ex-husband, Rick. And he came and helped me and talked him into meeting him up in a parking lot that was outside of Cary Unit. And I went up there with him, and we got him committed to rehab. And he stayed three months. After three months, he was released. And he did really well. We went to church. Everything was good for about 15 years. And then all of a sudden, it started all over again. After a couple of months, I couldn't do it. I ran. And we ended up separating. We were separated somewhere right around six months. And I was getting pretty lonely and sad. And I said, let me sign up on Facebook. I never went on there before. I went on Facebook. And the first person that came up was Gary Barker. And I thought, wow. Now, I had dated Gary 26 years before for a summer. And I'm a little bit older than him, and I already had two children at that time. And Gary was only like 22. And I said, no, we couldn't do this anymore. So I moved on. Little did I know we'd hook up again. Well, about a month after we... Um, started seeing each other I got a call from the hospital and the police I wasn't home and when I got home I answered my messages and the messages were that my husband had been in a motorcycle accident and he wasn't going to make it and we were separated this time and we were in the process of a divorce. And they told me I had to come down there to sign papers because he wasn't going to make it. So I went down there. And he was on life support. They ran the test. And that next morning, they um, took him off all the machines, and he passed away. I was so afraid to get into this relationship with Gary because the two choices that I had already made were such bad choices and I just thought if I would just if we would just date and never get married it'd be okay so we dated for six and a half years before I ever said yes Gary asked me several times to marry him and I just told him I wasn't ready but I'll remember after we started dating about a year a year and a half he told me we couldn't date anymore unless I started going to church with him and I said okay so I started coming to church, and that was 11 years ago, and I sat in this church. I did not talk to anybody. I'd never said a word, and that probably went on for, I don't know, eight, nine years, and then finally I started raising my hand in church, and that was a big progress for me. So, but the first thing I did after we got married, we got married May the 16th, May the 7th, 2016, when Gary finally asked, asked me again, finally one time I told him yes, and he asked me on Christmas morning um, the year before we got married he um, had gone for a checkup to the doctors after we got married and six weeks after we got married, Gary found out he has cancer prostate cancer and we were both devastated. We didn't, we, that was the last thing in the world we expected. And I thought to myself, after all these bad choices I made, I finally found somebody that I feel like was right. And I knew he was right. We were doing everything right. And then here he was going to die. So he, we decided to, uh, Gary, we looked around everywhere, what we were going to do and everything. And he decided we were going to do the holistic treatments. So we took off to North Carolina. We went once a month, every month for eight months for treatment. And we stayed a whole week each time we went. And after eight months, Gary was clean. And he did really great. We went home, we lived our lives. 
came to church every Sunday. It was great. And then COVID hit. And when COVID hit, Gary and me both were really sick during the Delta virus. He was sick about four weeks, and I was about two and a half. We got through that, and then six months later, we got it again. And then six months later, we got it again. And then Gary's test results started elevating and getting worse. So in 2022, Gary woke up one morning and couldn't pass any urine. So we go to the hospital and they put him on a catheter and sent him home, run tests. We knew, they told us at the time, it was the cancer, it was back. We just didn't know how bad. So the first thing I did is I knew I needed something to help me. So I joined a women's group, a, a community group at Terry Ward's. My first night I went there was a big impact. Terry handed me a little book at the end of the meeting, two of them, and told me to take them home and read them. Well, I took these books and I thought, oh, good, I'll give these to Gary. He can read them. And I, I threw them on the living room table. And he was already asleep, so the next morning, I was gonna give them to him. Well, I got up that next morning, we were going to the hospital and um, we were gonna find out our results. And I had already I picked the book up and started reading the intro. I read the intro, chapter one, two, three, four, and it was time to go. Gary was getting up, I had to get ready. So I put the book in my little bag. I didn't even tell him I had it, I wanted to read it. So when we got there, he went into his testing and I finished reading the book. And that book has changed my life. The book's name was Don't Limit God. And we were praying for little things for Gary to have strength, for us to uh, have good test results. We never prayed for healing. So we changed our prayers. Then I, when I was, a few weeks later, we were in the community group. And one of the girls started talking about a church that was going to do some healing. And of course, I'm in this mode again. I got to fix Gary. So we look into this and everything. And that Saturday morning, we get up and we go to this church. And we saw all these testimonies of all these people that got he were healed and everything. But that's not what we thought we were going for. We thought we were going for everybody to lay their hands on us and heal Gary, this remarkable healing. And that's not what we saw. I made Gary stay to the last person because I was going to take him up there and he was going to get healed. When we got up there, well, that's not, they told us that wasn't what it was. And they let us know that Gary was healed. He just had to receive it. And we didn't know what to say. We were shocked. I was embarrassed. I was shocked. Everything. But it was the light bulb was turned on. And it was like that one little statement. And I've heard it so many times. And that day changed my life. So when we started going to chemo, we walked in the chemo like, like we owned the place. We had such confidence. We went in there. We turned our music on. We worshiped, we read our books, we laughed. I felt guilty because I was having so much fun while my husband's having chemo. But I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit was in that room every time we went. We had a peace about us. We still have that peace about us. And I can't explain it at all, but we had a great time in there. We sang, we worshiped, and we still do it all now. And my husband, we went for our final testing, and he came back, and he is clear of cancer. He went last week for another test after six months. His test results are better than they were the last one. everybody here we couldn't have done it without everybody here there's not one person 
that did not pray for us, say something to us. This is amazing, church. I would never go anywhere. <laughs> Thank you. We're taking communion this morning. I'm going to talk real briefly, don't, I promise. I know because oh, we're running late, but um, we're taking communion this morning. Why? Why do we take communion? Why is this part of the, of the church liturgy? Um, Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 19 says, And he took bread, and we had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup. After they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is Jesus' words to his disciples. Why do we take communion? Because Jesus himself tells us to. Because we're forgetful. Because we take things for granted. And so Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Do this physical act in remembrance of me. But then I ask myself the question, well, why this? You know, why did he pick communion for us to do in remembrance of him? Why not anything else? And the reason is because communion, when we take communion, when we take bread, when we take the cup, it points directly to the cross. It brings us right back to the cross, which is exactly where we need to be. Because when we are at the cross, the cross brings us back to all sorts of amazing things. It brings us back to repentance which is a beautiful thing. It brings us back to worship. It brings us back to acceptance. It brings us back to love. It brings us back to his grace and his mercy. It brings us back to victory, and the list goes on and on and on. But today I want to talk about victory. I want to talk about victory and how the cross brings us back to the victory that has already been won in Jesus. Amen? Revelation chapter 12, starting in verse 11, says, And there was war in heaven. There was war. Can you all imagine that for a second? There was war in heaven. But that's what the word says. John is seeing this vision. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. And the dragon lost the battle. And he and his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, It has come at last, salvation and power, and the kingdom of our God, and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. And verse 11 says, And they defeated him by the blood of of the Lamb, and by their testimony. Listen, y'all. Satan is the great deceiver. He is a liar, right? He is a liar, if you know Princess Bride, right? He is a liar. He lies. And it says here in Revelation 12 that he was deceiving the whole world. But you know who he lies to? You. He lies to you all day, er day. Satan lies to you and he lies to me. It said, Jesus says in John chapter 8, starting in verse 44, it says, He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Do you know that before Satan there was no such thing as lying? Lying is birthed out of him. Just like goodness and love and all the things of God flow out of God. It's not a character of God. It's who God is. Lying is who Satan is. You want to define Satan? Liar. That's it. Jesus himself says that he cannot tell truth. And everything that he says to you, everything he says to you is a lie. All of it. Every single word. Communion brings us back to victory. This story right here brings us back to victory over the lies. Because when Satan whispers those lies into your ear, you're not good enough. You're going to be alone forever. Someone's going to find out about who you were. Whatever those lies are, the cross 
screams truth in our lives. That you are loved. That you are valuable. That your past does not define you. That you are forgiven. That you're never going to be alone. That there is healing. That there is power in the cross. It screams it to us when we forget it, when we start believing that great deceiver. And these verses out of Revelation 12, there is a legit battle going on. But the battle that we fight is not that battle. The battle that we fight, the only battle that we fight is this. Truth versus lies. That's it. What do we believe? That's the battle. Because Jesus has already done the physical part. He's already been on the cross, he's already died, and he's already risen again. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities of this dark world. And the powers and principalities are liars. They are liars. And so our battle is belief. What do we believe? What do you believe? And I believe that there are some of us in here right now that are believing the lie, that are living in that reality of the lie. And I want you to be real honest with yourself this morning and ask that question, what am I believing today? What am I believing today over my life, over my marriage, over my kids, over my finances, over my health, and the list goes on and on. What are you believing right now? Are you walking in a lie? And here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that lie, and whatever it is, I don't want you to bring it to the cross. And I want you to see how it matches up. See how it matches up. Is this what the cross says about you? Is this what Jesus says about you? Is it truth? Or is it from the great deceiver, the liar? Put it against the cross and see what happens. That's how we define truth. What does the cross say about this? What does Jesus say about this? Because if it's anxiety and stress and fear and all those things, that's not the cross. The cross expelled those things from our lives. So do a contrast and comparison. What am I believing right now? Ask your spouse, what are we believing right now? And let's put that at the cross and see how it looks. In light, not in darkness. That is the battle that we face. The battle that's going on in Revelation 12 is a full-on battle. It's like there is actual fighting going on here. This is like Lord of the Rings stuff, all right? We got a dragon and his army versus Gabriel, right, in his army. Like, hello. Nothing new under the sun, y'all. It all came from Scripture. I would have loved to have sat ringside for that. That's what's going on here. What are they fighting over? us. We're the prize. That's the point of the battle. That's the point of the war. You see, there's victory at the cross because the enemy didn't just say, oh yeah, you can have them. I don't really want them. There's victory over the cross because there had to be a battle for us. There was a battle for you. You know what that means? It means you are valuable. It means you're worth something. If there is a war going on in heaven over you, what does that say about you? That should make us feel some sort of way. Right? Like, oh, okay, I'm kind of feeling myself a little bit. There's a war in heaven over me. They could have been doing anything. There was a dragon who wanted me. Like a dragon wanted me, right? That's weird. But we are valuable. Who won? Gabriel and heaven's angel armies won. How did they win? How did they win, y'all? They won by the authority of Jesus, shown by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. That's how they won. It wasn't sharper swords, right? It wasn't better military strategy. It was the perfect blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. What did we experience this morning? The word of the testimony. Was it powerful? I'd say so. 
That's how we defeat the enemy. The blood of the lamb represents God's perfect love for us. Jesus was that spotless lamb, and his blood was poured out for us. And when evil goes up against perfect love, perfect love wins every single time. That's why when we are believing the lies, we go to the cross. We bring those lies to the cross because perfect love will cast out those lies. They just fade. They just fade. Because perfect love wins every single time. It's incredible that the cross now represents love. Because it was originally a symbol of death and judgment and fear. Fear especially. Death and fear were the two things that the cross represented. You know, in Rome, they would, they would line the streets as you entered into the city with crosses. And the message was, don't you do anything or you're going to end up on one of those. So before people even came in, they were striking fear in those that were coming in. Don't mess up or this will be you. And they would kill people and they would put them on display for everyone to see as a message that don't you mess with us. That was the cross. That was the message. Jesus gets on the cross gets nailed to it, and suddenly the cross now becomes a symbol of love and forgiveness. And I've done it all for you. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to live in fear. You don't need to believe the lies because that thing that was once this is now about love. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing that it's not just us that Jesus brings from death to life? He literally brings two pieces of wood. He can take inanimate objects from death to life. Now that is power. And that's what he did with the cross. He said, I'm going to take the thing that you use most to cause fear in people's lives, and I'm going to bring freedom through it. That's Jesus. That's victory. Hallelujah. Our testimony. Our testimony is truth. It is Jesus' work in our lives. And when we are in that place where we are believing the lie, when we start speaking out our testimony, what we are doing is we're speaking truth. We're not saying, oh, I'm going to live in this what if this happens, but I'm instead going to live in this happened, and I serve the same God today as I did then. So he's got me now just like he did then. And so when we start living in that place, we start speaking out our testimonies, right? And we start living on the testimonies of others, and we get out of believing those lies, our testimonies are powerful. I can get up here and preach my best sermon ever, and it's not going to touch the testimonies that are in this room. But I'm still going to preach. I need a job. <laughs> Our testimonies are powerful. They're powerful. They slay the dragon, y'all. We're looking for all this stuff. What do I got to do? What do I got to memorize? What do I got to do here? Speak your testimony. Speak your testimony. It's the sharpest sword you have, and it'll cut off the head of the dragon every single time. We take communion because communion is the symbol of the greatest truth we have, and that is that Jesus died for you. He died for you. This Christmas season that we're in is about birth, right? It's about Jesus being born. And that was, the, that was the first step to his death, was him being born. And that began the path to his death, from manger to cross. That's what it was all about. And that is why we receive and we take communion. And that's what we're doing here this morning. So the band can come back up. You know, the Christmas season is filled with hustle and bustle. Nonstop. Some of you already feel like that. I, I talked to someone this morning. It's like, I'm ready for it to be over, okay? Uh, real talk. I get it. And when it's done, it, like, leaves us in this cloud of dust. Like, what just happened? I don't even know. But today we are slowing down. We are slowing down. And we're putting the cross at the center of Christmas. Because that really is what it's all about. It is about the cross 
as you come up this morning, I want you to leave the lies that you may have been living in. Leave them up here. Leave them at the cross if you got to kneel again. But as you take the bread, as you take the cup, I want you to say, I'm not going to believe this lie anymore. Pit it against the cross and let perfect love shine its light on that lie. So why don't we stand up this morning. As you come, you're going to take a piece of bread. You're going to dip it in the cup. Not going to drink from the cup. You're going to dip it in the cup. And say whatever you need to the Lord. But I want to say this before we, before we invite you up. If you've never received Jesus as your Savior, if you've never opened up your heart and let him in, now is the time. There was a time where, where Trey and Sherry both, who shared this morning, hadn't made that decision. And praise God, they did. There was a moment in their life where they said, that's me. I'm going to receive Jesus. And the rest is history. Y'all, as much as I love both of them, they're not special. Jesus didn't just die for those two. They died, he, Jesus died for everybody. All the world. And this can be your moment too. It comes back to what do you believe? What do you believe? So if you need to take a moment in your seat, there's no formula, there's no perfect prayer. You just be honest with the Lord. That is what he desires most, that contrite heart. Say whatever you need to say to him. Say this, Father, come into my heart. Jesus, Jesus, I need you. I'm tired of trying to do this myself. Receive that gift that is offered to you. You were one on the cross. There's nothing for you to do. Jesus, I need you. He knows your heart. So let's pray, and as we do, if you're over on this side, you can come to this table, this side, this table, in the middle, either one. Y'all, you're adults, so you can figure it out. But let's not forget what the Lord, what he did this morning. So powerful. I do want to thank Trey and Sherry. Thank y'all. It's hard. It's really hard. really grateful because see it's 20, 23. It took about 26, 27 years for Trey to finally admit that I was a better drummer than him in high school. And I want us all to remember that today. And take that with you. And let's lean into that as well, shall we? But I love y'all. I love this church. And I want to see it grow. I want to see more people sharing their testimonies here. I want to see those future believers. So before you leave today, go to the Connect Center. Don't walk out of these doors without getting an invite card and use it. Use it, please. Father, we thank you, Jesus, that there is victory in your name. God, that you won and the devil lost. And as much as he tries to tell us that he's the winner, we know he is a liar and he is a losing liar. He's a loser of all loser losers. And well, God, I just right now cast out every lie in Jesus' name that anyone in here, anyone watching online might be living in. Whatever that is, God, and I pray that all of us in here would, would, would leave that lie at the cross and that it would be done with. That you would break those chains, Father. God, I pray against depression. I pray against suicidal thoughts. I pray, Father, against anxiety and stress and loneliness, Father. God, against the bad health reports, Jesus. All those things, Father, and so much more. God, I break the power of them right now in Jesus' name. And we leave them at the cross where the work is done. It was enough, Father. And we thank you for that, Jesus. And we celebrate you, Jesus. We celebrate your life, your death, and your resurrection. And God, we gladly take this bread. We gladly take this juice, Father. And we remember the God that you are to us now, the God to who you are then and who you are going to be for us, Father. We thank you that there is victory in you, Jesus. We exalt you, Father. And we say thank you, Jesus, for the victory in you. Hallelujah. 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 Thank you, Jesus. Y'all can come on up and receive communion this morning as we continue to